Welcome to the Where Two or Three podcast, Christian thinkers finding their place at the table of communication scholarship. Before we begin this disclaimer, the views and discussions of this podcast do not necessarily reflect agreement with the views of Martin Luther College. And we'll begin with a prayer. The eyes of all look to you, O Lord, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hands and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Amen. Amen. Good to see you, John. Yeah, good to see you as well. Catch me up a little bit. We're not in the same place, just so our many listeners realize that, but we're seeing each other's faces. So what's going on? Yeah, we found a we found a good uh, way to do this more or less remotely. I know COVID was a bit of a, a struggle, um, and it was before I had been driving down to New Ulm from Minneapolis each time, but now we've got a fantastic world of Google Meets and then we just record separately on our own devices and we send the audio over and it should be just as if we were face to face. So, and I'm a big hypocrite because I say so many things against technology in my classes and the human capabilities are that are eroding. And here I am completely exploiting it for my own benefit, but, uh, Oh, well, (laughs) yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a blessing. I mean, Totally. Trying to think about, you know, 10 years ago, would this have been possible? So many of the things that we do, and there's there's just so much, um, there's certainly, there are tools that can be abused, certainly, and I think there we focus on that uh, quite a bit, um, and not without reason, mm-hmm. but they're also, it can be used uh, very effectively, and that's the, that's the hope of this one. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, I've, I've received some feedback uh, on our program, and I thought it made some sense to me. That feedback was that people can kind of tell that we're coming from sort of different angles within communication. You know, you took my comm class back in the day and were inspired to go get a degree yourself, um, but our, our interests really have diverged. You know, I got the mostly the interpersonal piece. And how, how would you characterize your research interests since since leaving college? Oh, my, so my, just to clarify the question, my research, uh, like what research I did in college or where my, where well, I've kind of turned since then? Or? Well, I'm thinking of the complaint against communication as a discipline is how can there be a discipline that studies everything? How can that be a thing? You know, I think I've said that before. It's just so broad in terms of Mm -hmm. what you can get into from anthropology to journalism to media and so on. So what would you say are your favorite niches within communication? Well, I would have to say it's twofold. Uh, Part of it is still what I did my graduate research on, which was uh, semi-broadly education. I was looking at self-efficacy and how teachers behavior in the classroom is interpreted by the students and then how they build a sense of self-efficacy based on those teachers' nonverbals is really what I was looking at. Uh, So that's still something that I'm actually still collecting data on that because my IRB, excuse me, my IRB lasts five years. So um, I actually went out and presented the thesis at a conference shortly after I graduated we were going to publish it. And then 
in the few months of time between me presenting the study and then presenting it to the, the publisher, the math that's required to prove this academically changed. <laughs> so I had to get more data and have to show a diff- use a different mathematical model to show the relation between all of the things that I was asking. So it's a kind of I, convoluted process. I wasn't um, sure that math could change, so that's really interesting. <laughs> I think well, the, the okay. math didn't necessarily change, but the... Um, the standard practice for showing, say, a correlation, there's oh, a certain sure. mathematical procedure that was the standard at the time. And then uh, the specific thing that I was looking up was mediation. So you say, I don't know, variable A is correlated to variable B, but then when you introduce variable C, that correlation changes in a significant way. That's, that's what I was looking at, at showing. Mm-hmm. mathematically and there are many different ways that you can do that with statistics and probability and so i think the the core fundamentals are all there a lot of it was seemed very intuitive at the surface level to me it's mostly just going through the process of rigorously showing that this is true in a mm. more or less qualitative way mm-hmm. um, so that's kind of where the the hang up is there but i guess i'll, I'll probably finish collecting data for the five years and then uh, we'll see where it goes then. We've got plenty of things happening in life. So, (laughs) so that's the, that's the main, uh, was my main entry point was education. Um, But I'm also very interested in narrative and uh, constructing narrative in purposeful ways. And I guess it's kind of related to education. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think you've said a phrase before. uh, If you want to, change the world you have to entertain it and that's, i think changing the I've world is saying. really is definitely yeah it's an, yeah. it's an education is the is the way that you change the world and i so, think they're very closely intertwined so you education should almost then. be i'm sorry you mean visually as far as storytelling right uh yeah partially mm. i think all all aspects are very interesting to me i happen to be in the film and tv world so so that's kind of the where I engage with it the most, but I think Mm -hmm. you can do the same thing with written stories or prose or poetry or even like pictures, art. Mm -hmm. Lots of these things can be purposeful in the way that they, the way that they catch your attention. And I think that's the part that's really interesting to me is how are you capturing people's attention? Because that's really what entertainment is. How are you, utilizing that in a very purposeful way. It's very interesting because I think a lot of times now people's attention is like a currency for advertisement and for social media. And that's a huge metric that people are using. It's how much, how much engagement are you getting on your social media for the, these companies Mm -hmm. are tracking all of these things. And, and so our attention has value to it. Um, And then being able to, capture attention and then use it purposefully and in a way that can be educational and benefit, I think is a, it's really fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. So Very I've thought good. about going back to school for it, but be a little bit of time between now and then, I think. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose. Or who knows, maybe I'll change my mind next month and I'll be signing up for the <laughs> spring semester. <laughs> I suppose the big idea of the way to change cultures, entertain it is the persuasion that happens when you don't know you're being persuaded can be back to the indirect yes. communication piece. So 
Anyway, so the observation someone made that was that we come from, we have different niches that we've kind of carved out for ourselves. And that um, if I talk about mine, um, or if you talk about yours, I may not have a lot to say to really respond intelligently. And just having different issues like that made me want to ask you, um, what would be a topic from your expertise, John, that we could um, spotlight in an episode and not kind of have, oh, as I get to be the one choosing Oh, that was an actual question. Yeah, yeah. there was. So that we, was we had talked. Yeah. <laughs> well, when we had this conversation, the first thing, one of the first things that came to mind was argumentation. It was one of my favorite grad school classes, uh, really about persuasion. Just the um, how do you use rhetoric to change people's minds, or how do you effectively make a case and, and point mm-hmm. on something? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really poor definition. I probably won't send this over to my former professor and have him listen to. Uh, but argumentation is a, it's even a debate as a, it's a, I'm losing my words. It's a, almost like a sport. They have intercollegiate competitions on this. It's a very sophisticated and interesting thing uh, to witness, let alone to study um, but really, how do you how do you make a case if you believe something and someone else is believing something different? Hmm. What happens then? What are mm-hmm. the what are the different tools that you have in your tool case to to make that happen? Yeah. So, and I remember my question back to you was, how do we find a place for that within the sweet spot of our um, of this podcast? Right. So Christian scholars find their place at the table of communication scholarship, meaning that we have things to contribute coming from our, from our worldview as, as opposed to those that dominate this culture. And so to our listeners, the, the big idea was, could there be a topic that would come from you and one that could come from me that would play together nicely, I guess. And so my first thought was, would, would Christian apologetics be a topic that would be the thing I bring while you bring argumentation? So, yeah, I think. Go ahead. I don't, I don't know. That I'm, was it's an honest I, question, really. Yeah, we went back and forth a little bit. I remember when I was at MLC, I was, I think it was a uh, ministry day or one of those Wednesdays where everyone takes off of school and we kind of go to a handful of different classes or seminars or have people come in and speak on things. And I remember one of them was apologetics, and I can't remember. Maybe. It, was it you? Were you talking about it? No, it's it might possible. have been Mike Berg from WLC. I'm not sure, but it wasn't me. Okay. No. But I remember it was around that time. It might not have been specifically that talk, but I remember apologetics was it wasn't a hot topic, but it was a it was something that was on my mind. I didn't know I didn't know what to make of it because I had been in quite a few conversations with people at work or people outside of didn't, who didn't share my faith, that is. And we'd talk about evolution or even the nuances of baptism and other mm-hmm. doctrinal issues. And, and so I was using these debate tactics or strategies or argumentation as a just reasoning with people and showing them, here's how from Scripture we are getting this and this is why I believe this is true. And I found that I really wasn't getting anywhere. Hmm. And so I was kind of, even if I was making my point and they conceded the point, they're like, okay, yeah, you're right. Uh, 
<laughs> this is uh, Calvinism is probably not the best way to go, right? But the, what then? What is? And I think especially with people who who weren't of faith already, who didn't believe that Jesus saves them from their sins. Mm-hmm. Great. So that you quote unquote proved that evolution isn't real or some other thing that was the right. the topic at the time. What good does that do? What does it? Where does that lead you? And my reasoning at the time or my understanding of the time was the the goal of this should be really be to to point them towards the cross. And really what I've done is I've pointed them away from whatever they were doing or whatever direction they were headed, but I wasn't necessarily sharing the gospel with them. And so I kind of had this maybe argumentation and proving my point or proving that you're wrong isn't the right way to go about things at the beginning. And maybe there's a better way to go about it. And and that's where I was at that time. Mm-hmm. And my first thought, too, was maybe argumentation and apologetics come together in an interesting way in terms of just the contrast, that they really are very different things. Um, I think about, and Kierkegaard called apologetics a second Judas kiss. So, so I think he's talking about apologetics that gives a certain place to reason, human reason, that you and I as Lutherans just aren't comfortable with. And so... It's like you seem to be defending Christ, but you're betraying him because you end up arguing for a ro- arguing for a role for human reason to have to get to exactly. ultimate truth that you and I would just think is pretty idolatrous and and just really not not true to the human condition that human reason is the way to get at absolute truth and so call it a, a betrayal, a second Judas kiss. Um, and he had a, he had another concern too that's kind of interesting. It, and where my mind goes first with this question, he called it uh, the genius versus the apostle. So the genius is like the apologetic champion who can get up and win the debate with uh, with whomever is the opposition. And you and I as Christians sit there and we cheer because our guy won, right? But that's a pretty superficial kind of uh, confidence or assurance because the, the person is making arguments that I myself can't make. I don't even fully understand them. It's just my guy won and and somehow that lifts me up. And so he felt that that really discourages the way we normally think about witness, which is he calls it the apostles, so to speak, or the, yeah, the apostles, so to speak, because um, we're just testifying to Christ. And if it seems weak not to ground all this in human reason, it's because the we want the power of Christ to to rest on the nothingness of the witness and on the apparent nothingness of the gospel. And so all these concerns kind of go through my mind as I try to think, how is apologetics like argumentation? And I just think of ways in which I don't want it to be, really, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I agree. I think when I'm in that type of discussion, very quickly I feel like, the real work here is for the Holy Spirit to do. What am I? What am I doing? Mm-hmm. I can't. I can't do that work. I can't fill those shoes. They're a little too big for me. Mm-hmm. Actually, a big, a big too big for me. <laughs> so, I. It feels. Um, I, I think we wrestled with this even just coming up with what to talk about in this episode mm-hmm. was just how do we? Is there actually a, a way that these things hold some relevance and they? they have a, a place at the table. And, and I think the answer um, is yes. Together. Yeah, I think yeah. the answer is definitely yes. As I think about it, I, 
I think in our circles, most people would make a distinction between apologetics and witnessing and would offer some kind of preparation role to apologetics. So, And we'll might maybe get into this more later, but if science is a problem for you, it's what gets in the way, we'll just deal with that so that we can get to witness and have you not be simply resistant, you know, in every possible way. So in my own work, I don't necessarily like that distinction, but... Um, Maybe, let's try this. Let's uh, maybe define apologetics. Um, I think there are a few ways we can think about it. One is as the academic discipline. So there's a discipline in academics that basically looks at how the Christian worldview functions among other worldviews, especially in an academic setting or among scholars. So in other words, if I am a historian who, a historian who happens to be a Christian or a historiographer, how, how do I communicate Christian truth in that context? Or if I'm a scientist who is Christian, or if I'm a philosopher. So that'd be one way to think about what apologetics is. It's that, it's that worldview operating among other worldviews in an academic or scholarly setting. And so on the other side, there, there is the Greek word apologia from the New Testament, right? And this is in the Apostle Paul, this is him arguing in the Sanhedrin. And so if we want to have apologetics linked to the Greek word in the New Testament, it would be not excluding the scripture by any means. Whatever Paul is doing there in the synagogue, it, it, the, the core of it is, a, is arguing from scripture. With Peter talking about apologia, saying, be prepared to give an answer, there the context is just giving witness, just testimony in a hostile world to here's why I have hope in Christ. And so... It's kind of semantics as far as defining apologetics. As I teach and talk about it, I give room to the scripture and I say exactly what you said, that there's a point to it. And it's, it's um, one of our fathers, J.P. Kaler, said this about polemics. If we're going to argue doctrine among Christians, he says, let it be just another form of bringing good news. So why do it if the point isn't to share the the full extent of gospel assurance that you and I have. Why talk about infant baptism or whatever it may be if that isn't the reason? And even if nobody else uses the term quite the way I do, I'm not sure. I think of apologetics that way, and I, I don't make a distinction between that and witness. I, I, I see them together. Um, so but if you want to react to that, there is one more, and I think that's the first sort of sweet spot where Lutherans can comfortably take part in this and where argumentation then can get, be given a lot of room to, to play, but you want to react first? Yeah, I think in terms of defining what apologetics is, it's not one of the things that keeps me up at night, for sure. <laughs> I think there's, I tend to think of when I'm looking at academic things and semantics and all of these, it's really just trying to parse out which of these things can be useful. And I think the context that you're in, if you're in the academic world, certainly apologetics in that sense, is going to be useful if you're writing a paper or doing any sort of discussion about how the Christian worldview uh, contrasts or aligns with a different worldview. Um, and then the other one, which I, I don't know how to, uh, to, to say it exactly, but just the bringing the good news, I think, is probably the best mm -hmm. way, as you had put it. Um, that certainly has value too. Maybe not in the context of the academic world, but you can still call that apologetics and it can still be useful right. as a, you know, a sidecar to a witnessing situation mm -hmm. or any other time in life. So yeah. 
Um, yeah, that's yeah, very all. good. Okay, so <laughs> yeah. okay, so I think this will set set us up for maybe an interesting conversation about the two topics brought together. So there's something that some have called negative apologetics, and some have felt like this is the place for a person who's minded as a Lutheran with our view of reason and so on. Here's a place where we can um, really find our voice. And so negative apologetics might be thought of as not arguing for our faith from reason or evidence, not going there at all, but instead arguing against the irrationality of the objections to our faith. So an example might be if you say that there can be no God cannot exist because of the evil in the world. Well, the question is, does that make sense? Um, most philosophers say it really doesn't because in making that argument, you're really appealing to some objective standard in the universe, in a moral universe of what right and wrong are. And on that basis, you deny that God is, is valid. Well, you're appealing to the very thing that you're trying to deny. Now, that might not uh, be an effective way to talk to someone who is in pain, who is, I'm sure it isn't. To give a you just intellectual you convinced answer. me right now, but <laughs> yeah, but you know it kind of falsifies the situation of someone whose question is more of a heart question than than that. But that would be an example of negative apologetics, saying how much sense does it make to reject Christian truth on on that basis? There's way more to say about pain and suffering. I think that I've seen not long ago that at least eighty percent of people who reject Christianity that's the reason. It's it's just life is hard and you just can't reconcile these two things. So anyway, that would be a, a place where, since we're not arguing for f things that are matters of faith, um, that human reason and I think any form of argumentation becomes valid because these things are subject to reason as we pick apart, let's say, that objection or one of many others. So Very much so. Good so far? I mean... Yeah, I think even the, the way that it's described, negative apologetics is using an argumentation term, which is um, there are two different sides to an argument. Every argument has an affirmative side and a negative side. And the affirmative side is the one that's trying to make a case for something. They're, they're saying, this is what um, needs to change. In, in the debate culture of intercollegiate debate sport, they have a, a resolved statement that is will be something like, uh, let me think of an example. I thought I had one written down, but it's it's basically saying uh, the United States should mandate a three-party system or some sort of policy change, mm -hmm. and they have to advocate for that. Even in courts of law, you have to build a case, the prima facie. You have to present evidence that shows that you have a case against someone or, or any of these things. So the affirmative side is really the one that's – they're the ones who are trying to do the persuading. They're saying we have an agenda, which is that we should change to a three-party system, and here's why. Here's all of these reasons, and so on and so forth. And in, in a legal affirmative case, you're you're saying you know this person is guilty because of this, this, and 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 so on. The negative side, or the defendant, I would say, in the legal situation, is really uh, has kind of the high ground because they don't necessarily need to prove anything. They're just saying. You can, you can take apart their arguments of the affirmative side and maybe present a counter-argument, um, which might go off case or you might change the, the playing ground a little bit. But really, you're not trying to prove anything necessarily. 
and, and negative apologetics mm-hmm. this is the case. We're not trying to say, here's my, my case for a God. We're, we're really saying, look, your case against a God falls apart or your case for X, Y, or Z doesn't really hold up. And so you're kind of using the same argumentation uh, strategies and terms, and you can you can play in that world very uh, effectively. And I think with um, maybe not by itself as a, like the be all end all of of our you know witnessing, of course, I think would be the end goal, of course. But mm-hmm. there's still value here, I think, to be able to speak this kind of language to people who are presenting a case against God or against your faith. Yeah. So to be able to stand your ground and and uh, and live in that world, I think, is a valuable thing to sure. do. So what you're saying before is, I mean, it doesn't bring people to faith. This isn't law and it isn't gospel. <laughs> and those are the things that that the Spirit does use to make someone alive. But, uh, but it's still a valid point of contact from what I'm hearing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I realize that we forgot our devotion. I don't know if I have a big... Big devotion, but I do have a scripture to bring in. Should I do that now? <laughs> yeah, I think we can. Okay. We actually, we have the um, most shares in the Where Two or Three podcast, so we can decide as the only members of the board <laughs> there you go. where the devotion Do you goes. want to make a motion or, yeah. A <laughs> uh, motion for the, <laughs> for the devotion. <laughs> okay. I've never voted for a devotion before. But, uh, our shareholders well, will be, will be pleased because the, <laughs> the money will start rolling in. Uh, uh, okay. Please refer to the disclaimer at the beginning. Of the <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Literally do that now, listener. Please, please rewind. Okay. No, there is a scripture that I think supplies a warrant to what you were saying is, and what we've both been kind of saying too. Um, is there a place for negative apologetics? Now, what I think I might have said is I don't think it's the only place. I think there's some other really interesting ways that reason can be exercised, for sure. But uh, this is from 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10. It, it's really kind of fascinating because the first verse goes like this. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. Begins, you know, just so softly, just like Peter would say, gentleness and respect. By the, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. Then by verse 3, the language turns to something very different. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. That's the key phrase here. Divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So pretension like people are basically good. Or pretension like, well, no one thinks that guy really existed anyway, Jesus. Or no one takes those those scriptures seriously anymore. Don't you know that? So we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. So unless I'm misreading this, I think that's exactly what negative apologetics is. That there are strongholds in a person's mind, things that have been, that have been built up that really exclude Christian truth. Um, There's a prominent apologist that refers to these as defeaters. And what he means is a a thing people may say that if that thing is true, then Christ can't be true. So a loving God could never send someone to hell or 
Um, there's just too much suffering to reconcile with a God of infinite goodness and infinite power. If that's true, then the Christian gospel isn't true. And the idea is that those things often go unexamined by people that hold them. They're just, they're a stronghold, but they carry a certain take it for grantedness for that person. And so, I don't know, what's interesting is that the way these can change from place to place. So in our culture, hell is a major defeater or stronghold, the doctrine of hell. But you can imagine places in the world where it isn't, where the, let's say the violence people have seen and experienced and the loss they've experienced at the hands of wicked people are so intense and, and so, I don't know, so much a punch to the gut that the fact that God is just and eternally so is not a defeater, it's what keeps them from going insane, you know, and, and helps them sleep at night, the fact that God is just. Or the fact that in our culture it's wrong to say you have the truth. It's wrong to say you have the truth. Well, there are places in the world, I'm pretty sure, where why would I listen to you if you don't even think you have the truth, you know? And so these change from place to place, and you, you could think of a top 10 within our culture and could do some nice witness training um, around just what do we think about these things. So... And I, I think it's more, interesting when you to, said yeah, let before, you jump in. Oh. I got, no, I got more, but I wanted to let you jump in. Yeah, so you had kind of alluded to it earlier in that a lot of times people aren't really making these arguments from a sophisticated point of um, point of view. They're kind of, I think it aligns with something that they already hold true or that they already believe or that they already want to believe. So they have this, that something's happened where they just feel like, Man, there's no way that God could exist if there's so much evil in the world. Or they have this, from previous experiences, they've just come to have this idea that, you know, God doesn't exist. And so when they mm -hmm. find something that also points in that direction, they latch onto it and then they can use that as this little shot of ammo. Pew, mm -hmm. pew, pew. Look, more evidence that God isn't real. Right. Because there's evil in the world. And it's not really, there's not a lot of, um, they don't dig deeper into it. But when you when you can probe into that a little bit, I think you can uncover some other things. And I think that's, maybe that's something we can talk about a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But once you get past the negative apologetics portion where we kind of deconstruct how these arguments fall apart, that can be a great place to start peeling back the layers of, you know, what had led this person to make this argument in the first place or what's happened before that mm -hmm. is what's, what's really going on underneath the surface. And then we can kind of speak to that and maybe use that as a, um, I mean, it can go any number right. of different directions, right. but that can be a, a place where more, uh, traditional witnessing can occur or where you can share, here's a, here's a, a why I'm a Christian, right? Like, from inside, it's a totally different world. And mm -hmm. I'd like to share that with you. Like that can be a point where you can go to there. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're so right. There's a guy named Gary Habermas, who is the guru of resurrection apologetics among other thing, other things. And we should talk about him sometime as well, because he, I think is speaking in another way where argument and reason can really fit that we can find ourselves talking like the apostles talk as we appeal to the evidence of the resurrection from the first century world and so that's for another day but his his more recent research has looked at why do people report not believing and it is 80 percent personal meaning meaning it is life is hard 10 percent it's just they don't really want to 
associate with Christians. It's just we're just not the kind of people they want to be with or hang out with. And and uh, and the other ten percent is kind of a problem of the will that they want to live a certain way. You know, they want they they demand autonomy, and no one's going to tell them how to live their lives. And so, but there's an awful lot of people for whom all this stuff is is as you're suggesting. It's and it's a broken heart. So the argument about the doctrine of hell can just be the broken heart that there's there's someone who I if I believe you, I have to think is lost. And so we want to deal with that person in a whole different way, really, than someone who is truly asking a philosophical question, let's say. Yeah. Um, so to, to be really practical with negative apologetics, there's something you could think of as the apologetic conversation, which kind of carves out a careful role for negative apologetics. It goes like this, that, that I would witness to Christ in the way I always have before I ever studied apologetics. I would witness to his beauty and his necessity and all of that, you know, um, using scripture, not, not leaving scripture out. And even if you don't believe a word of what I'm saying, at least you will know why I care about it. At least you'll know why a person could even want it to be true. Um, you'll know what the singing is about in church. But even if you don't believe it, well, I, I witness this to you and then then the most natural thing in the world is to say, I can tell you're not buying it. Tell me why. And you're going to tell me you're a defeater. You're going to tell me you're a stronghold. Well, I, I can't buy it because the church has done such horrible stuff in history. It's full of hypocrites now. And, and I think we could... One writer is called a putting a stone in the shoe. And I, I don't treat your defeater as ultimate. I, the reality is if I were to argue it down, you'd come up with more. I mean, you, you can come up with this stuff all day long, but putting a stone in the shoe just means that I would try to shake that, take it for grantedness of it, and have you walk away saying, hmm, I wonder, does it really make sense that this is the whole thing I cling to, you know? And having done that, I think the third part is to get back to a fuller witness of Christ, a more expansive elaboration of Christian truth and I've even been playing with an idea, I'm going to call it an apologetic of the word, which is to think about all the ways that this conversation can be moved into the scripture. You know, you got a great thing that you're asking me, John, you know, I wonder, do you happen to know about Psalm 22? And I think it's possible that before you know it, we're, t we're, we're within the scriptures, which is right where we want to be and not to get bogged down on the endless defeaters. But so... See, what I'm trying to say is, does this kind of carve out a place for negative apologetics without making it suddenly dominate and without losing track of the ideal of, this is another form of bringing good news, I think, in the best case, in the best version Yeah, I think it. what what we've, we've both been saying is, like, this is an entry point to a further conversation. And it's it really, it kind of sets aside maybe our initial response, which would be, I think the response I see a lot of times is just, oh, this is wrong, you need to not be wrong, and this is why, and this is what I believe, and this is right. And it's just a very uh, abrasive sort of um, uh, need need to be right almost. This is more of a, okay, I'm going to set aside the playing field that I'm used to wanting to be on, the way that I'm living. I'm going to mm -hmm. have the with itness and, and empathize with where you're coming from, and we're going we're gonna to play a different game. And I can... I can step onto that field and I can, you know, we can kick the ball around there a little bit and then we'll find out what's really going on. And then that can lead us to something else. It's not right. like negative apologetics is going to be the, 
um, only bullet we have in the gun per se, but we'll have, uh, it will be a, it'll be a good tool to use to lead us to, to other things that are, that are also valuable that can help, uh, do more of the leading to rather than the leading away. I like that. I, I like the thought that we don't want apologetics to be weaponized rhetoric. You know, it's going to be this big yeah. game, big game of gotcha, but that, uh, that's a performative contradiction. I'm going to talk to you about the love of God, but you don't sense any, <laughs> any grace in me. And that's the, that's the tricky thing it. because a, a lot of times the, the arguments are weaponized. And so to be able to speak a little bit of that kind of language or to be comfortable in that kind of conversation enough to guide it somewhere that's more productive mm-hmm. or, and not saying that has to happen all in one conversation either, but there, there's plenty of value in putting the stone in the shoe, as you said, where you, you kind of leave someone thinking on their own, you know, is that true actually? Or <laughs> is this, is this really, does, does that hold up if I, if I take it further down the path? Yeah, absolutely. So with that kind of long definition slash devotional thought, what what else comes to mind from your field? I mean, you, you bring to this the argumentation piece. And I taught a course called Argument argument and Advocacy in Writing maybe 15 years ago, once or twice, but you're the one that knows about argumentation. Any other area that comes in your mind? Um. Not right off the bat. I think the main one is what I had brought up earlier, which mm-hmm. is that the the negative side of it is really a a term that comes from the 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 discipline itself of mm-hmm. of debate, which is that there's a negative side of that isn't necessarily trying to prove something. Um, they're just trying to show that whatever the affirmative case is trying to make is not not the best way to go. Mm-hmm. You, so there's a number of different strategies that you can use to, to, to go about this. You can, um, you can make a counter plan. You can say, you know, instead of say the affirmative case is trying to say, we should mandate a three party system. The negative side can be like, actually we should have a five party system and here's why. And if that argument holds its ground, then, uh, the negative side would would win by making a a counter plan. That's kind of a an off case way of doing mm-hmm. things. It's mm-hmm. not. It's a it's a like a trick up the sleeve of the the negative playbook. Um, but really, you can just say um, the status quo is better than what a three party system would be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you 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 don't have to prove anything. Um, so really, that I think is the main takeaway from from the negative side. I guess apologetics or argumentation as a whole, I'm trying to think of the next like really valuable thing that I learned from that content that is specific to negative apologetics. And maybe, maybe the other one that I found was um, being able to separate yourself from the arguments that you're making or from the ideas that you're discussing. So a lot of times I see people take, uh, whether it's politics or religion, just things that they care about a lot, they take um, the other, the op- opposing side's point of view personally. It it like hurts them, and that can put you in a in a pretty bad spot where you. I see people lash out. You see people get angry. You see people upset, and that's just not a good place to have a 
an actual conversation about something. Mm-hmm. We've talked about um, difficult conversations before. Like having a heated conversation is not a it's usually not the best time to actually make decisions about something or to make progress on something. Mm-hmm. It's usually better to, to step, step back and, and take some time to separate yourself from what you're discussing and to kind of see it from maybe a, an arbitrator's point of view before coming back to it. And so being able to transcend the situation and using that as a tactic, a debate tactic, whether or not you're you know, in a debate club and you're trying to win a trophy for your school, or if you're talking about the faith that you hold very dear to you, I think being able to separate yourself from those things momentarily for the sake of being able to talk about things in the way that, say, someone who's making a different case against you is is bringing it up, I think is a really, really valuable thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. Otherwise, so, the barriers fly up and people become entrenched. And it becomes mm-hmm. like a debate where you naturally are going to defend the position you took, right? Isn't that part of how debate yep. works? You take a position, yeah. you defend it. You don't let go of it. Who does mm-hmm. that, right? You, so, you can't you can't change sides in the middle of the debate. You decide <laughs> no. ahead of time what what you're trying to, to argue for. It would be like the lawyer in court all of a sudden taking the side of the defendant. It would <laughs> make no it, sense. you're right. <laughs> but maybe there's something there. That actually seems like an interesting story that might have some biblical... Uh, it might be, I don't know. Not, it's not a parable, but it, it's an interesting thing. It's like the person who who is accusing you is now suddenly defending you. Yeah. There's maybe a thought there. I don't know. I kind of like that. Yeah, interesting. Um, but I, I like that uh, the other. You go. Go ahead. Uh, you might have heard of the term "devil's advocate." And mm-hmm. in, in speaking of like switching different sides, sure. I think uh, one of the things that we had talked about. We went through the whole history of debate as a form of education as a way of, um, uh, say like the Socratic method is questioning as a form of, of education, as a form of learning. You can get into sophistry, the whole history of everything leading up through debate. And one of the things I thought was interesting is that, um, there are a few different professions where debate was a core component of the learning process, especially through, I'd say like the 1800s. I think it was, Lawyers and clergy. There's one other, but I can't remember exactly uh, what that was now. I'd have to go back to my notes. Not but I know sure. clergy, as part of their as part of their education, they would have to do debate in the Christian context, and there would have to be someone to take the other side of this in the room. Right? It's kind of like an exam. Like you get up and you're you're arguing against someone. And so someone had to take the side of the devil and that's where the devil's advocate came, Mm, where that term came. But I think it's also, uh, it just shows the, the value of being able to argue the opponent's side of something also helps you understand that point better. Even if it's not something that you necessarily believe, but it, it helps you fortify the position that you're actually trying to to make as a stronghold, right? So mm-hmm. I think there's value in being able to, I play devil's advocate all the time at all the family reunions, everything. I'll, I'll take the opposing side just for the fun of it sometimes. But <laughs> um, do you keep getting invited? And <laughs> less and less. No, I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> I'm sure you're very I pleasant think it's a, as you do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, 
it's a good skill to be able to really understand where um, it helps you take apart the the arguments that you're hearing. So it can be a great, even if it's just for yourself, kind of playing out a debate in your head mm -hmm. where something would go, taking the opposing side for a few moments and or even longer to to help figure out how you can like what where are the weak points here? Where are the mm -hmm. spots in the armor where where things fall apart? So. Yeah, that's a little bit of from from a more purely argumentation perspective how that would uh, where I think it intertwines very nicely with apologetics and it it brings value to the conversation. Yeah, I I like that we're talking about this because one thing it helps us to avoid is if I understand the term right, something called fideism, which in in my understanding is simply. Someone says, why, do you th why should I believe you as far as a Christian testimony? And you say, well, you just got to believe. And the, the test of apologetics to me is, are we talking like the apostles talked? Because they had more to say than that. And it's a kind of a horrifying message if you would think about sending a, a young person off to a secular university, telling them, you just got to believe. And and giving the impression that when it comes to Christian truth, you don't really want to examine this too closely. There's questions you don't want to be asking, and shut yeah. shut that down. Close close your mind down because it's going to be risky. And you think about uh, King Agrippa calling the Apostle Paul on trial, implying that he was losing his mind, and and Paul just, I'm not losing my mind. What I'm saying is very reasonable. He says, which is interesting to use that word, but he says King Agrippa, speaking about the resurrection, it didn't happen in a corner. You know, and other places Paul writes about, there are people still alive today. Really, any street corner in Jerusalem where it all happened, you can find someone. Some are some are sleeping asleep, but they're most are still alive. And it's really inviting him to investigate and interrogate the testimony, just like we do with our New Testament. And that's a very different answer than than uh, well, you just got to believe. You know, it's yeah. I think the only time where I just got to believe held true ever was on February 22nd, 1980 in Lake Placid for the Miracle on Ice. <laughs> well, that was a successful case, though, so maybe yes. I'll withdraw <laughs> my comment. No. no, I think I heard a celebrity talking about this, a celebrity turned Christian, kind of a second-tier celebrity, forget his name even. But he put it this way. He said, I didn't realize what the nature of the Christian claim was. He thought it was some kind of metaphysical mumbo-jumbo. He didn't realize the nature of the claim is an event that happened in this actual world. That therefore that, that event is um, at least investigatable. It's not beyond yeah. em empiricism that you could examine the evidence and reach conclusions. And so it's another place where argumentation, I think, is very valid. And so again, if I'm talking the way the apostles talk, I think I'm on pretty good ground. And so... Yeah, more to say than just fideism. Um, yeah, it's a. Uh, it's always interesting when you hear someone who used to not believe for quite some time, and even even someone who was uh, maybe outspoken against Christianity, then to come to faith and for them to speak about it is always interesting to hear how they say that. I've never thought about that before, that, that what's the nature of the Christian claim? Because mm -hmm. I've, I mean, I, I might've thought that it was purely otherworldly. Mm -hmm. Even even myself, if you would have asked me that question, but to, to 
ground it into reality such that Jesus was physically here on this earth and physically died to take away your sins. That's a, I'd never thought about it like that. Well, so it was very really interesting to hear. Super useful. Um, we have a new faculty member at our college named uh, Professor Luke Thompson, and uh, he's done a lot with apologetics. Where he came from in Ottawa, the church is right in the center of the university in, in Ottawa. And um, in his senior thesis at seminary, which kind of makes you sick that he came up with something so great <laughs> as a student, but uh, he grounds apologetics. And this is exactly what we're talking about t- today. He grounds his apologetics in the hiddenness of God um, and a Lutheran view of apologetics that way. And the point is that, so Lutheran theology has God hiding behind masks. And there are many you can think about. So Adam and Eve reached for God's glory and became sinners. And God says, you can't bear my glory now, and so I shall hide my glory in places only faith can find it. And those places include the wonder of the created universe. And those places include what someone else might think are coincidences, but you and I see the hidden hand of God. And the Christian is a mask because we are sinner saints at the same time in whom God dwells. And there are more, more importantly, the the ink on the page of the Bible and the, the earthy elements of the sacraments, the bread and water and the wine. Most importantly, in the baby in Bethlehem and the the man who died on the cross, that nothing looks less like glory than that. But nothing is, so nowhere is glory more hidden than that. And no more is God more revealed than in that moment. And so God hides behind masks. Faith finds him there. And so uh, Luke Thompson's brilliant thesis to, to help Lutherans find their voice in this arena, because we have things that we see and others don't see. And so we should be part of the conversation. It is that the mask is something that can be empirically investigated to our heart's content. I can look at the evidences of the New Testament or of the resurrection. I can look at the evidences that the New Testament is phenomenally reliable. And I can look at the design of the universe and of my own body and and so on it goes. Um, And having maybe brought a person into contact with that, that part that can be safely investigated empirically, then we will give our witness to what we believe is behind the mask. So behind the mask of evidences of the resurrection, you and I know by faith through the Holy Spirit and the means of grace that God has reconciled the world to himself through Christ his Son. And what's so useful useful about that is it carves out a distinction. The thing I can investigate, the thing I can apply reason to, and the thing I just have no business applying reason to. So we can investigate the order of the universe and all of that, we can make the teleological argument or the cosmological argument all day long. It is our witness then that 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 behind that mask, the thing that for you and I explains that mask, is is the God who reconciled the world at, at the cost of His Son. And so, does that make sense to you? I just find that incredibly useful. Oh, that is that's fascinating. Uh, is this very similar to what Paul's speech in Athens was? Where he kind of takes what other people are looking at, which might be the mask of an unknown, an unnamed God, and like, let's explore this. We know that there's a God, we, but we don't know who he is. What's behind that? Here's, here's what it is. Mm-hmm. That just, that's just, just a fascinating way to, to think about it. I haven't thought about it. That's a Yeah. That's What's beautiful interesting. In a way. Yeah, I, it really is. What's interesting about the masks is that none of them really seem like they should be masked in a certain way. Like the universe has 
COVID in it, you know? So the universe is like a, like really? a, a ruined cathedral. So it's got the beauty, but it yeah. also has, you know, evidence of what's wrong with everything. Uh, the, the Christian is a mask, but the Christian is a sinner saint. So how much of a, like a mask do I, do I appear when you see who I am as a sinner? And, and Christ crucified, we said, and, and the Bible seeming, seeming to all appearances to be this human document compiled, you know, at some such time. So um, I guess what that kind of brings to us, though, in every case, it's also bringing to us our, our fallenness in some way. Each of those examples brings to us that as well. And so, yeah, really, really interesting stuff. And I think that's a, I think that's that's a, a great, great contribution that he's made. Yeah, I think that's kind of what we had been talking about before, where the negative apologetics portion of that is the examining of the mask, exactly. which is here and, and present. And then the revealing of what's behind in a beautiful paradox is kind of what it is to like open up the worldview of this is what it means to be a Christian and hope it's hard to, I mean, we can't give that glimpse, but the Holy Spirit can be there and can Very do true. plenty of great things. So there are several that I know of, including in our circles, who've reached a conclusion that Though apologetics is really broad, it extends throughout all the disciplines that we've talked about before academically, yet it isn't an, an inexhaustible list as far as what, for example, I want to teach my children as I send them off to college, and that there are really two core issues. I mean, the existence of God is a third, a distance third, but these are all defeaters. So if God doesn't exist, then of course there's no reason to take Christianity seriously. But the first two, one is uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And so scriptures say, you know, plainly, this is a defeater. If Christ is not raised, then your faith is useless and you might as well be pitied because of what you put up with as a Christian when it's all for nothing, you know. And so I think that means that this is a, as the apostle argues that and then speaks about the witnesses who are still alive and invites you to investigate, I think that's one critical place where there's a place for a reason there. It's still it's still investigating the mask, not trying to empirically prove who God is in Christ. And the second is major defeaters if there's no reason to trust the New Testament. And so I think there it's it's a comfortable spot for Lutherans because we're just simply defending based on the evidence that there is that there's every reason to take these as documents that are just as they purport to be off the hands of the apostles of Christ. And and so those are two issues where I think it's comfortable for us to to defend those without crossing that line in things that are not just are not subject to human reason. Yeah, the idea of reason as a a core fundamental of existence is kind of an interesting thing that I've noticed where we like the foolishness of the gospel, right? Like there's things that we can't necessarily prove are true, that it falls apart in this beautiful paradox. We just can't explain everything, right? There's So our faith has this unreasonable attribute to it. Um, but reason itself, I mean, many of us use it in our day-to-day lives. I think the very, um, we, we all make cases for something. There's a whole debate culture around it. It's, it's hard to just say that nothing's reasonable. Everything's we're not going full Ecclesiastes on it quite yet. The reason is still, it's still there. Um, but one thing I, I thought of as I was coming up with uh, some, some content for this was 
you know David Foster Wallace. Mm-hmm. We had, uh, I think we might have talked about him before, but he has this great commencement speech called "This Is Water," and at towards the end, he he goes off for a little bit on basically everyone worships something. Some people worship money, but the, he beautifully explains it. Like if you worship money, you will never have enough. If you worship beautiful, if you worship beauty, you will always feel ugly. If you worship anything that isn't ultimate, it falls apart. If you worship reason, you will wind up taking it down some alley where it can't it can't work. And that's actually I I noticed afterwards that mathematics doesn't even have full consistency. So there's some theorems by Kurt Girdle, I think is how you pronounce his name. Uh, the um, incompleteness theorems, which basically uh, says when you have any kind of rigorous mathematical or uh, reasonable system, and he uses math as the foundation of this, where you have certain axioms that define what you can say as true and what's not true, and you can define it in all sorts of uh, all sorts of ways. Any system that you make like this, there are certain things that are true that cannot be proven. And there are certain things, uh, yeah, there are certain things that are, that just cannot, it falls apart. Because when you introduce self-reference into the system, it, uh, it can't handle it. There's, there's no way to account for self-reference in set theory, in just number theory, in, in math in general. And then if you apply that to reason itself, I think reason falls apart at some point where did, there are certain things that, we can see to be true, but maybe we, we can't necessarily prove. Mm. So taking so, that, if, if reason is your God, it will fall apart. Oh, I see. And so that's where I think, Good. and yeah. I think that's where, it, yeah, it's kind of a long way to get there. But I think if reason and science and all of these things that are often used as the, maybe like the defeaters of people who are, are kind of, maybe making a case against Christianity. I see it quite a bit where people are, Christians are unreasonable and they're this and that. And so reason is your God, it will fall apart. It's inconsistent at its core. Right. It can't account, it cannot account for everything. Um, and so that's the thing that you can examine. And then the beauty behind that is the foolishness of the gospel, which is that, you know, maybe we can't, we cannot prove that God is here, but we can see him. Mm-hmm. We can, yeah. There's an interesting phrasing in that verse that you're referring to a couple of times that the cross of Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing. It doesn't say foolishness, period. It's, it's foolishness from the outside, but there's a way of thinking about human reason being sanctified and faith soaring, Mm -hmm. faith soaring to a higher reason that Mm -hmm. just nothing really else makes sense, but to trust, uh, the God speaking in his own name, you know? So there's nothing unreasonable. I'm sorry. Yeah. And that's what on the outside, like if we're talking the negative apologetics portion of this, where someone's holding reason as their God and that alone that will fall apart. But then when you can peel that back and you can show there's something beyond that, 
it kind of, that's, that's where the paradox is. And I think mm-hmm. that's the, I think that's what I was trying to get at, but sure. that's, yeah. So yeah, it's not unreasonable to, to accept that reason has limits to it again, as far as ultimate yeah. truth. And once you see that, yeah. you realize that to know truth, we can't discount revelation, truth coming in from the outside, which is yeah. how, we re- how we receive Christ in all of this, by, by the word of God, by the spirit. But reason has limitations. Yeah, and I guess I, yeah, I guess I wasn't trying to say that faith is all foolishness, and and I think it's reason is only part of the picture. I think is what I would bring it. Yeah, to. no, I, I hear you. It's, I think it maybe yeah, what helps us to distinguish, as uh, Lutherans do. So how can Luther talk in one breath like reason is the whore of the devil or whatever he says, and that reason in yeah. its breath is the highest gift of God? Well, he's talking about two versions of reason. And one is ministerial. The ministerial ministerial use of reason is to use reason in daily ways, but especially to how it takes reason to understand the word of God. This is this is a cognitive process to hear and process the words. And mm-hmm. you and I, as com scholars, we think about this deeply. That that's a that's a role of reason. But yeah. the the magisterial use of reason, in contrast to the ministerial, is to be willing to stand above the scriptures and to be, I'm going to be the one arbitrating what's believ- believable here and what's not. And that's where we would say, what blasphemy that is. It's like mm-hmm. apologetics as theodicy, which is, can we justify the ways of God to men? What blasphemy? They have no business doing that. Who am I, you know, to bring my wonderful powers of reason to the, to the defense of God? You know, like, like Lewis would say, God in the dark, yeah. God in the, God is not in the, God is not in the defense position in the courtroom called the dock in England. God is not the one on trial, you know? And so there's, there are places like that where we can say, okay, now the use of reason and apologetics has crossed a line that we're not willing to cross. Mm-hmm. So that potentially it's exists a, It's a tool. It's a tool that we can use. Sure. And it's very useful in many places. And then, But when you have a nail, you need a hammer. And yeah. when you have a screw, you need a Phillips. So... Being able to not use the hammer on everything, I think, is uh, you build better houses. Yeah. I, I think negative apologetics has, you know, some real simple examples. Like if you deny God on the basis of pain and suffering, to bring this full circle, all you've really done is made pain and suffering many times worse because you've just made it meaningless. And that is worse. And so that's just a little bit of an application of reason, maybe not quite so philosophical as what we said before, but it's 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 that application of reason to say, how much sense does this make? Isn't pain a problem for everybody, no matter what your worldview? Because whatever you say about it doesn't really change it. And therefore, isn't it worth at least considering what a full biblical theology of suffering looks like? Because the Bible has incredible things to say that are very useful. You know, not to chase the problem away, but they're still very useful to to hold the believer together, you know, in, in a crisis. And so uh, you read Luther, and he gave a place to that kind of apologetics, too, just a small place. Like, the fact that the gospel has survived to our day was for him an example of, you know, there's something going on here that we would do well to pay attention to, the, the survival of the gospel down to our day. You know, Chesterton said... The Christian church has died many times over in history, but a good thing its founder knew its, knew its way out of a grave. And there's something going on there that if we're 
kind of safe and disciplined, we can bring these skills of argumentation to the picture. Negative apologetics. Absolutely. Yeah, do you I think, think there's be... another episode on this, John? I think there's more to say about I what the cautions so. would be. There's more to say, I think, about what other yeah, places... I've been, I've been careful to try to limit what I've been talking to to the specific application of negative apologetics mm-hmm. where we're really focusing on deconstructing an argument that's made and then using that as a an entry point or a tool to peel back the mask and show what's behind it. I love that mm-hmm. that analogy. That's a really beautiful one. Um, I think there's probably many other instances that we could talk of and maybe we maybe I do think there's more episodes after this that we can talk about with apologetics that isn't specifically negative. Um, but I'm sure that the it will come up again because I think it's part of a it's part of the journey. It's it's not the whole thing, negative apologetics. It's usually the entry point or or a way to get into it. So Sure. Um yeah. I'm sure that we'll we'll find other instances of it, but I'm I don't have any other specific ones that are related. Hmm. Yeah, I was thinking a quote by Chesterton since he came to mind. Says he says, Allow one sun in your sky to be too bright to look into, and then everything else is lit up, and that one sun too bright to look into is that thing beyond reason that that is a matter of the spirit's revelation by his word. And that is the person of Christ and you know, true God and true man, our Savior. And and so it, it's like um St. Augustine had what someone has called a productive ambivalence. Did I say that before? Productive ambivalence yeah. is about rhetoric. So he's, he's nervous about it, and yet he refines it and makes a major contribution to the church. And so I think our productive ambivalence about apologetics is probably healthy. The fact that we have a certain nervousness about reason slipping beyond its bounds, that... that uh, we would ever lose that sense of, hey, I believe in Jesus on other grounds than apologetics. I believe in Jesus because this God chose me in creation and then reaching it to time with word and sacrament and, you know, made me his own. And I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ or come to him. All, all those are just such good, good grounding things as we yeah, carry on this kind of ambivalence. Um, so I, I do think so, too. I think there's more episodes in this that we'll find something from your background and mine to bring together. I think it's fun. Yeah. Yeah, I think that we should wrap it up then. Do you have any fun things happening? Any dessert? Ah, yeah, I do have some dessert. I'm I'm in a group of writers. We call ourselves the Lugs. Legion of Unextraordinary Gentlemen. Um, and uh, how do you, okay, so I need to L O L U G L U G S. Skip the O for Oh, okay. Oh, okay, okay. Lugs. This may offend our listeners. that. This may offend our listeners, but it was totally innocent and accidental that in one of our meetings I referred to us as the jugs instead of the lugs. And we laughed a little while about that. So. <laughs> Not the jugs, but the lugs. Sorry, offended <laughs> listeners. So 
This was I can't Spain. wait for the mail. The <laughs> hate mail. This was uh, inspired by one of our members who brought us together. There were th- four of us now. We're three for a long time, a couple of, couple of years. Inspired by a book called Bandersnatch. And I don't have the author in front of me, but the subtitle would be something about C.S. Lewis and the Inklings. So that's C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien and a bunch of other people who would read stuff to each other at the Eagle and the Child pub in Oxford, sometimes called The Bird and the Baby. But it's a fascinating book about how these people interacted with each other in books like, like um, 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 what's Tolkien's book? <laughs> Lord of the Rings? There, yeah, there it is. It's been a long, long day. Um, books that would not have existed without this group, without their encouragement. and It's just fascinating stuff. Um, they were lavish with their praise and they were brutal with their criticism, like you, you almost can't believe. But uh, ultimately they were like, who's got something to read today? And, and kind of just forcing each other to produce was kind of the main thing. And so I got a book I think that might happen because of this group. I'm not sure yet, not a promise yet, but um, I have only read a few chapters of Bandersnatch, like the first four, but the last one has the episode where a guy named Hugo Dyson, anytime Tolkien would read from Lord of the Rings, Hugo Dyson would just throw a fit. Oh, don't tell me <laughs> more elves, you know, and he would just, <laughs> he would lie on the couch and throw a fit. just to, Orcs? And, what are and Lewis is like, um, Dyson, shut up. <laughs> Come on, Towers. <laughs> they all have these nicknames, you know. Come on, Tolkien. Yeah. But the story is that that was kind of the fatal wound to the Inklings because it's one thing to criticize, it's another, another thing to shut somebody down and and um, never really recovered from that. So, so yeah, Tolkien would never read from Lord of the Rings with Dyson present. And, Interesting. Yeah, but my favorite idea from the whole thing... Uh, I was just talking to my students about this today. Um, it's the idea of the resonator. Resonator. Um, comes from, do you know this name? Put you on the spot. Harold Laswell. If I said yes, would you believe me? Yeah, and I'll just remind you. <laughs> I don't How think convenient. I, I don't think I met him in grad school, but the first thing I read in, in uh, my PhD program was about the founders of communication and Last world is famous for the for the sentence, who communicates what to who, across what channel, to what effect, which just sounds so obvious to us now, but at the ground yeah. floor of communication, he made a major contribution. Well, a resonator is somebody who, when you're performing or writing or whatever you're doing or preaching, teaching, whatever, it's somebody who is vibrating with you, so to speak. So no matter how the audience is receiving you, somewhere out there is someone who is who brings you through because they they love what you do and they totally get it. They understand what you're after. They get it and they 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 want more of it and they're you know, they're in that kind of posture of and again they kind of they kind of bring you through and I'm thinking of just tons of experiences I've had in front of classes or even large audiences where you gotta speak to everybody. You can't leave people out in public speaking, but you can sure thank God for the resonator, you know, that's giving you mm-hmm. that kind of response. So anyway, I found that just really an interesting piece from that book, Bandersnatch, about the Inklings. Huh. So you got something? I think uh, I'll make mine somewhat related in that um, we've talked about community before. I know we were both part of 
cross country, which I think had a very special community. Um, but it's one of those words that's kind of hard to define. Like a group of people doesn't necessarily mean that there's a community present. But what what is this? What does this word mean? And what the what you had talked about with the with the lugs or with the um, no no what was the group called? <laughs> the what was the group oh, the called inklings. with the the inklings the yeah. inklings the inklings uh, just the idea that there's there are some times when groups of people are greater than the sum of their parts and I think that's a really uh, I think it's an admirable thing. It's lucky when you find it. I think mm-hmm. I haven't been a part of too many recently, so I feel like the void there a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I like think I've, I saw a couple. I think the shout out to the women's cross country team. I believe just won. They did the conference championship. That's UMAC awesome. Champ. So we don't get many I, championships at our school anymore. We're so small compared to some recent yeah. teams who've joined. Recent schools, and yeah. so I've been seeing quite a bit of memories flood up. I mean, it is November, the first couple of weeks of November. That's always when, you know, the seasons are ending and people are doing their last races and just a lot of memories around that, that community. Um, and just really, I don't know, I cherish it. That's mm-hmm. my dessert. Be, be grateful for the communities that you're a part of, whether they're 18 sweaty guys running around for five miles or four people writing words in a pub. Absolutely. That's very good. I was with a group of people, my study group in my qualifying exams for my PhD, and we became community for sure. And some of the people were kind of like what you said, they were kind of starving for it. And we all kind of agreed you take community where you can find it. You know, it doesn't solve the issue, but... My grad school class had a little bit of that too. I yeah. think some, a lot of us are somewhat. We all see uh, what other people are up to. So I think a few, uh, quite a few of my class already went and got their PhDs, and they're all teaching now. So it's mm. just uh, add to the list of people that I know that are teachers <laughs> or professors. Yeah, that could be an interesting topic someday. Community. I'd have to do some study on what I even think it is versus what it isn't, and how it forms and what the dynamics are and stuff. We talked about group one time, I think. Did we have an episode yeah. on group? I don't remember. Um, I'm not sure. I'd have to go back. Well, maybe we did. I know we've talked about it. Um, I mean, I mean, in com theory, group group communication is of. Uh, is that one of the part of the matrix? Is that part of the? It is. Yeah. Um, they kind of separate communication theories into a matrix of different um, uh, categories yeah, as a way of defining it in, in group, group yeah. and culture and media and organization yeah. and yeah exactly cybernetic and all of these other different areas that you can or contexts that the communication theories are best situated and I, I think group mass media that kind of thing that we, we talk about or allude to that I know I took a class called uh, family communication, mm. which is a very specific kind of group or community. Mm. Um, that should be. I a, guess it depends. That should be a topic for sure. Then, writing that. Yeah, write, maybe writing that down. Yeah. Family communication. I remember it was interesting uh, looking at the, the trends between like 
the oldest child versus the middle child versus the youngest child and just seeing how what I, I'd have to go back and see exactly what the empirical data said, but I just remember it was kind of fascinating to to look at. My thesis advisor taught that class. I remember that was like her specialty was family communication. There are no individuals. There are only pieces of family. It's the first line of the the one textbook I know about on family communication for, for oh, graduate school. One. Yeah, yeah. I'll never not be Henry Poston's son, even though he's in heaven. Right, I'll never not be. Even even if a person is absent, it's still, it's still a truism. So. There are... What is it? And there are no individuals. There are only pieces, pieces of, families. of family. Yeah, we can talk about Paul In- Paul Vaslavak's theory of family, and yeah, I'm writing that down. That's there's, that there's probably something on with list. The, the family of God in there. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, this could really be in our sweet spot. I mean, as uh, the community is. I mean, the church community is a one group that I think could. Uh, there's there's probably a lot of stuff there. Hmm, I think so. That'd be that'd be fun to unpack that. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, this was fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to be we back should, at it. Do you think we should probably do it again sometime? Yeah. We, we, yeah. I just lost my train of thought. I was gonna say. Well, I suppose we should just end the podcast. Then, so. <laughs> <laughs>